Welcome to the TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about what they find interesting in tech this week. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh50, which means this is our 50th episode and also our one year anniversary. This week we'll have all four regular hosts. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment feature on the internet and the internet spam primer, primer hoping, <laughs> helping you get your inbox back, but not my tongue, twisted tongue. I'm Kevin Savitz, the creator of freeprintable.net, which offers 47,441 printable documents and templates, and factzero.com, which lets you send a fax, or five. And tonight brought, <laughs> tonight brought to you by hot apple cider and menthol cough drops with triple soothing action. I'm Leo Notenboom, <laughs> lover of coffee, corgis, and computers. And cough drops. And cough drops, yes. <laughs> Not always in that order. Cough drops are pretty high on the list tonight. And of course, I'm the Leo behind AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig, uh, MacMost.com, WPTipsAndHacks.com, and CleverMedia.com. That's Mac stuff, WordPress stuff and mobile games. So what, what we've been up to this week? Well, I found out that people in the real world have this thing called holidays, so I took a couple of days off and relaxed. Oh, did you give thanks? <laughs> yes, I gave thanks for getting a couple of days off, <laughs> finally. I'm thankful for Thanksgiving. Yeah. Do anything exciting with your time off, or was it just sort of, you know? Scary? I went to a friend's house for, for dinner and, you know, just actually watched a little TV and relaxed and had some adult beverages and talked with my wife, you know, the usual stuff. The stuff you normally don't do when you're working. Right. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin, how about you? Uh, I was uh, out of town um, on vacation with uh, my family. So I did very little nerdy stuff. Uh, However, on the, the plane, long plane, uh, ride last night back from New York. I uh, sat down and read a read most of a, a book about Python. Um, uh, automate the boring stuff with Python, and uh, just kind of skimmed it because I knew some of it from my previous readings. But I'm still just trying to continue to get better. Oh hi, cat! Uh, still trying to get better. Um, yeah, more familiar with uh, the Python programming language. I finished another book too. Um, it was called uh, the Eight Bit Apocalypse which was uh, the, the history of the arcade game uh, Missile Command and how it was created and how it uh, almost made the guy who created kind of go nuts for a while. Hmm. Yeah. Crazy. Well, I also took some time off, but it was not intentional. Um, I discovered that real people get sick. So for the past couple of weeks, I've been dealing with what is apparently a, uh, my doctor tells me is a three-week virus. I'm in week two and a half. So hopefully by the end of the week, I'll be all healthy. The biggest impact was that um, all of my uh, podcast recording that I normally do, I was unable to do. Uh, the fact that I'm here tonight and can actually speak um, is, is a significant improvement of what I sounded like last week. So that's where, uh, where my head has been. Uh, oh, oh, you're talking about a human virus. Oh, okay. Yeah, yes, a human virus. Um, How weird. I know, I know. I, I'd forgotten that they existed, and I was very rudely reminded of the fact. 
So, uh, and of course it happens over a holiday week. We have guests out of town. I'm coughing and, and you know, all that over them. So hopefully I haven't you know, spread the virus too badly, but we'll find out. Initial reports are good so far. <laughs> okay. patient, patient zero. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, um, I did, you know, holiday stuff too. Um, but a lot of downtime and I, so I, I tried to update my whole system of files, which I haven't done in years. I was still using file folder, you know, names and, uh, you know, where I put things and all that from, God, it's gotta be, I don't know, five, 10 years. So I, I updated it all for more cloud friendly type of system where I'm storing most of my files in the cloud now. I can't store some of them because they're big video files and everything. And it's just, that's just a pain. You know, when you have a gigabyte video editing file that not only is a gigabyte, but you're not just creating it, you're editing it. So it's constantly changing as you're working on it and try to, trying to ask the cloud to keep up with that is uh, unreasonable at any data rate. Um, but I did get the majority of what I do now is, you know, cloud-based files. Are you guys using cloud-based files or still doing a lot of local storage? Yes. Day-to-day. Yes. Yes. Yes to both. Yeah. Same here. I've got a ton of cloud stuff, but I've also, like you, I'm, I, you know, video editing has to happen locally. So I've got all that kind of stuff local. I yeah. believe in keeping stuff local and backing up to the cloud. So... Well, and to be clear, anything I have in the cloud, I have replicated in at least two other places. So there, it, my cloud may or may not be backup, uh, but it is backed up. Sure. It actually gets, it gets kind of insane with where things are backed up once you start going to the cloud, because I'm backing up all the files locally on my Mac and I have it set that all my cloud files are also local. So every single bit that is stored in the cloud is also on my Mac because that is a big drive and that's all getting backed up to another drive and it's all getting backed up to remote drive as well as of course in the cloud. And then some of those files are making their way to my laptop and that gets backed up as well. So chances are if I've just worked with a file, like the files I was dealing with today, they are, I lost count how many places those files actually exist at this point. Clouds all the way down. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I've made the, the comment that, because um, obviously I prioritize making sure my pictures are backed up because those are irreplaceable. Yes. And I've made the comment that something like um, the six computers would have to die simultaneously plus about five data centers across the world would all have to die before I'd lose a picture. Challenge right. accepted. <laughs> I, I wasn't even taking into consideration that cloud services themselves have backups. Right. right. So, Yeah. So it's, it's uh, but it's good. It, you know, it's a good feeling compared to it really wasn't that many years ago when if I had worked on a file today, it would exist in only one place, right? Because before the era of backups and incremental automatic backups and stuff like that. So, yeah, indeed. I had a computer um, uh, declared dead this week. I have a, an iMac um, that's 2011. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, 2011, 2012. Anyway, it's a few years old. It, I had um, uh, at the, the very end last year, I decided that eh, maybe it was, maybe, I don't know, it's getting a little old. And I basically used that as justification to get a, get a new uh, iMac Pro at that point um, and kind of handed over the, the old iMac to my kid who's been playing 
you know, games on it. Oh, Roblox. they killed it then. Roblox and, uh, well, maybe. But um, uh, anyway, it started being really weird. And uh, so I, I took it to a, 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 a place, that a local computer repair place that I, that I trust. A Mac and, doctor. Yes. And uh, they looked at it and they said, uh, well, we did some thorough testing and it seems to be the, the GPU card, uh, the, 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 the cards in these things start. I don't remember exactly, but they start getting weird with age and, and, uh, um, it tends to get better when it, once it heats up, but it gets like too loose in the socket or something. And it's like, it's a known problem with these computers. Then they said, well, we, we could fix it. We could get a new GPU, you know, Radeon card, put it in there, you know, it'll cost a few hundred dollars. And just like, we really don't recommend this. It'll just happen again. And, uh, so it was, it was very, I mean, I just, it's just amazing for have a company go, uh, yeah, we could fix it, but you shouldn't. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, uh, but it wasn't her, basically, I don't know. It was just, oh, it's a known problem. And also for years I've been running, uh, Boink on it, which is this, uh, distributed computing thing where, uh, it uses your, your CPU and, and GPU power to do, to do science. And they're like, yeah, you know, I've been doing that for years and working the GPU hard and that certainly didn't help it. Um, so anyway, it was, it's really time to retire that machine. So I've been, uh, I'm doing some secure erasing of all my data. It was already, we're talking about, but you're talking about backing up made me think of this. I mean, I didn't have to do anything. It was, everything was already backed up on that machine. That's fine. But um, I made, I double made sure that all her games save stuff was, was backed up. And now I'm doing a secure delete on that baby. And then it's going to go away. Interesting. Cause my, uh, about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, yeah. I, um, I didn't decommission, but I demoted my uh, MacBook Pro. Uh, that was my primary laptop. In fact, you guys probably saw that that's the one I had with me last time we were together. Yeah. And uh, the problem is that it just started crashing randomly. And by crashing, I mean, poof, black screen. Uh, and there was no rhyme or reason. It would take me a few tries to get it to reboot. And I said, this, this is just unacceptable if I want to get real work done. Um, so that's one of the reasons I'm running on a PC tonight is because it's a backup laptop that I've got for this kind of stuff. Uh, I'll be getting a new machine sometime in the new year. The MacBook Pro got demoted. It now lives in my basement uh, where its job is to play music into my home stereo system. Mm-hmm. And if it, if it crashes, no big deal. I just reboot it next time I'm down there. Right. But, um, but yeah, that's... Uh, Age happens, unfortunately. Computers yeah. and people. True. Now, I'm not sure if it's my connection or what, but Leo, you kind of you you go really quiet for a while, and then you come really back loud, and then you go quiet again. So I don't know if that's uh, I'll blame me, I'll blame my virus, my, my okay. physical. No, virus, it's definitely something with equipment, but uh, oh, I don't know right. if it's you or between. I think it's I think it's you. Uh, he you sounds pretty good that? to me. No, he sounds yeah. good to me. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Hey, there's a quote. I want that out of context. He sounds good to me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hey, it's our 50th episode. Woohoo. Woo. Yeah. Wow. We did yeah. miss a couple here and there. So, you know, it took us a full year to get to 50, but Hey, there you go. Not bad. Yeah. No kidding. This is impressive. Uh, so how many podcasts have, have been by the wayside on the roadside after, you know, just a few episodes, much less 50. So yeah. very cool guys. Congratulations to us all. Yeah, yeah, we've done some good work. Thanks, good. Have we though? Have we? <laughs> I've had some. Yes, yeah. you know, here yeah. and there. Some. 
Some right. good work. Speaking <laughs> of good work, yeah, Randy, go yes, for sir. it. Uh, I took a little time out of my day to watch, you know, just ho-hum yet another spacecraft landing on Mars. Um, you know, it's really cool that they're getting this down. Uh, I'm not sure where we are in the in the statistics now, but before this landing, the um, the larger number of spacecraft sent to Mars failed than succeeded. So the last few have been spot on, and it's getting almost routine. Uh, this one has a couple of interesting firsts. Uh, one of them was we've never launched an interplanetary mission from the West Coast before. This one took off from Vandenberg in May in a really thick <laughs> fog bank, so you could barely see it until it popped out the top. But um, we did that, and they also thought, you know, gee, we want to land in this particular spot on Mars, and with the launch window, that spot isn't going to be facing Earth when it lands. You know, too bad, so sad. So they they have in the past used Mars orbiters to relay the, the spacecraft coming in. And in fact, in one of them, you could actually see, I think it was Curiosity going down on a parachute. The, the orbiter was able to take a picture of that, which was just mind-boggling. But they thought for this, why don't they spend a little extra money and make a couple of little CubeSats so they can put up the same rocket and once it gets going toward Mars, it, they released these two tiny little satellites that did the relay for them. So when InSight landed and you know, came in and, and did its parachute thing and all that, it was able to relay all this stuff back to Earth. And, make, and so we can get real-time, well, minus the eight-minute uh, light time to get from Mars to here, so that we could see what was going on. And it was really neat to, to see that. And, you know, these things don't have a bunch of propulsion on them, so they weren't able to go into orbit around Mars. They just went zooming on by, and uh, they're going to be in solar orbit, but they're probably only going to last, you know, a couple few weeks. So they're not going to be able to do any science with them. But in the meantime, they were very helpful in getting back the information. How many times has, has NASA said, oh, this is a, this is a short-term project. <laughs> this thing's going to work for three weeks. And it's working yeah, well, five years later. Yeah. Yeah. They're really not. Voyager. <laughs> but, you know, and all that's political. You got to realize, you know, it's like, what can we for sure, if everything works, what can we for sure get in you know, two years? So they will get the funding for two years. And, you know, if they told Congress, Back in the 70s, yeah, we're going to run this thing for 55 years, and we need the funding for that. There's no way they'd get it. So they say, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a two-year, it's a four-year, it's a five-year mission. Uh, and, hey, look, it's still working. To it explore strange to throw it away. We should probably just you know, get a couple more million to keep that going and get more science. Right. So they do incremental funding, and you know, it's a game. But you know, if the Why? thing does fail in two years, it's like, okay. Yeah, we, we told you that. What I found fascinating about the, uh, the Cube satellites, uh, first of all, I was watching the, uh, the, the landing, as I'm sure you all were, and they kept referring to Marco. Marco, Marco this, Marco that. Yeah. I did not realize that this was short for Mars Cube, 
and that there were two of them and that they were doing this relay thing. Ultimately, uh, they're an experiment. They could have failed independently and completely, and Insight still would have been able to transmit its data back. It just wouldn't have been able to do it quite in real time. It would have done yeah. it um, you know, once it was facing the Earth again, once it was facing our direction. So that was, that was very, very impressive uh, little piece of work. Yeah, and CubeSats are the big thing right now, considering how small they are. Um, we have all this extra capacity on a lot of these launch vehicles, not only in lift capacity, but space in the payload fairing. Right. Uh, well, why should we waste this? Why don't we send up something small? And literally, these are, you know, the, the, the amounts of space, or they call it one cube. And it's roughly, I think it's 18 by 18 inches. And if you can come up with something to put in that space that can do some actual science, you can get funding for these things. Yeah. And there's hundreds of them that have been launched. And this is the first time that any have ever been launched past Earth orbit. So that was kind of cool and something new too. So, um, yeah, Marco is Mars CubeSat 1. That's where the O in the end came from. Came from. So, ah. um, it's one of those backronyms, you know, you come up with a name and then right, right. Uh, figure out an acronym for it. Well, it's kind of funny because while they were saying this and I didn't have that background, I was thinking, okay, does that mean like they're playing Marco Polo or something? Is one of them responding with Polo every once in a while? No, the calm guy. That's Marco Giotto over there. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing that I thought was um, uh, pretty impressive besides just uh, sticking the landing was the uh, the fact that, Oh, about a minute or two later. Oh, yeah, here's a picture. Yeah. Which yeah. was, you know, that world. and it was th through the lens cap. I mean, it was, they had a, a lens protector in place, but the lens protector was transparent. So you could actually see the horizon in the distance. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, a bit of the foot of the lander um, at the bottom of the picture. And, and one rock. I mean, they, they were looking for a really flat, you know, surface that didn't have any stuff on it and, and the uh, the mission um, commander said hey there's a rock right in front of it we're gonna have to have a talk with the landing people um, but the whole idea with this is they need to drill into the surface and they wanted a, as flat of a surface as they could get because they're putting in a, a seismometer to find out you know is this planet quaking and also a temperature probe so they can see if they can determine how warm the interior of Mars is. Does it have, I don't even know the answer to this, does it have a, a, a molten rock core or molten metal core? We may not know that basics already, but I don't happen to know it, but they're going to get much more data on what is Mars made of and um, how that kind of reflects what we're made of. I'm hoping they find um, lots and lots of water. Do you remember how deep that, that uh, drill is going? I know it's the deepest we've ever gone, or the intent is. It's something crazy. Um, I'll look like that up while you guys continue to talk. Several, <laughs> several feet, if I'm not mistaken, but it's one of those things where... No, it's where, like 600 feet or something like that. It's really crazy. It's, wow. Um, but the point there is that, you know, we'll be able to look under the, the surface of the planet like never before, and it'll be really, really interesting to see exactly what... Uh, it's what going it, yeah, 16 feet. 16, the surface, okay. According to the Oatmeal's uh, comic, which is, which you, uh, which is the, 
the entirety of what I know about this mission. I awesome. Honestly, that's the definitive guide. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is very cool. Even that. <laughs> that's a very good. It's funny. I don't, that. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, he, of course, posted another um, image or two on his Twitter or Instagram uh, when they landed. But he also posted a couple of the alternates he had prepared in case things didn't. Oh, oh really? Oh, awesome. no. Yeah, and, four, and Kevin's four, actually seven. wrong. It's, it's as deep as five meters. Which, yeah. But, okay. I know. <laughs> hey, you know, it doesn't sound <laughs> impressive unless you've ever tried to dig a fence post. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, yeah. Then you, you're like 16 feet. Wow. Okay. That is impressive. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> trying to get two, two feet down. Forget it. I was, uh, you know, it was like it took the rest of the weekend off after that. So, one thing that I thought was kind of wild was w- when they get the really clear pictures. So they, they had the lens cap on because, you know, they're, they're landing with a powered rocket landing and that's going to kick up a lot of dust or it did. And they wait for all the dust to settle before they pop the lens caps off the cameras, which is pretty darn smart. So once they get some clear pictures, there's a place at Jet Propulsion Lab called the Mars Yard. And they, there's a big garage in there that has, for instance, a full-size mock-up of the Curiosity rover so that if it gets in trouble, they can try to do things in the Mars yard. You know, they can set it up the way it is on Mars. And how do we get out of this problem? So what they're going to be doing for InSight is they're going to take all these pictures of all around InSight. And then in the Mars yard, they're going to build that exact thing. You know, if there's a rock right here, they're going to get a rock that size and put it there so that they can see how they're going to get around that to deploy the equipment that they're going to be sending out. And that's why it's going to take three months to do all this planning wow. to make sure that everything goes right because they only have one chance. Wow. My understanding is that InSight does not move. It does not. Right. So it's digging down and it's deploying some stuff. So Well, it's got this little robotic arm like the space station, that was big obviously, that is going to be picking up stuff and placing them on the surface. So that's why they want to really know what the surface looks all around you right. so that they don't just put it on top of a rock or something like that. And have it fall over. Yeah, that would be bad. <laughs> yeah, that would really be a bummer, especially if it fell out of reach. Right, right. You know, you know what they call it in, in Massachusetts? No. Mars Yard. Mars. Okay. You have to mute yourself for five minutes. Again? <laughs> All right. So probably enough of me talking. What else do you guys got? Um, so there was an article uh, in the register a couple of days ago, I think, about uh, a different type of vulnerability, call it a vulnerability, uh, where if you've got your browser open, the, the JavaScript in one tab can kind of sort of snoop on what's happening in the other tabs. Now, of course, it's not supposed to do that, right? The, the, the browsers are designed so that each tab is not just independent, but actually secure from one another. I can't open up a web page on Ask Leo and then go poking around into the tab that's open to This Is True and see what is on that site or what people are doing with it. This is actually, I find it really fascinating in the sense that it's related in concept, at least, to the old Spectre meltdown bug of of a few uh, months ago, I think it is now, where 
uh, software on your PC can use the characteristics of the CPU's behavior to infer what other processes are doing. It's, it's kind of complicated, <laughs> and we'll include a link to the article I have on the topic, um, you know, uh, what you need to do about uh, Spectre and Meltdown, where I've got a pretty reasonable metaphor that at least explains at a high level how Spectre and Meltdown are you know, exposing things in, a, in an otherwise secure system. And it has to do with how the CPU basically performs certain types of optimizations. As it turns out, what's happening here is similar in the sense that the browser is looking at the JavaScript in one tab is looking at the operational characteristics of the browser. It's actually looking at, I don't know, things like uh, how big is the cache, what's happening in the cache, uh, numbers that are like benign. For example, and I honestly don't know if this is one of the characteristics, but let's assume for a moment that it is, that I can see at any point in time how much data is in the cache. I can't see the data that's in the browser cache, but I can at least get a number that says it's this big. So when you're loading up a web page in another tab, well, there's several steps associated with that. You, you, you contact the website, you download the primary page, you download the assets like you know, the, the CSS files, the images, the other, the JavaScript files that are associated with it. Each one of those are unique. They're unique to that particular page that you're looking at. So in theory, if you were to track, say, the size of the cache over time while a different, uh, while a different page was loading something, while a different tab was loading a page, you could kind of sort of get a fingerprint for the browser's behavior when it loads that page. And apparently that's what they've done. They've actually created fingerprints that says, okay, when you go to this website, um, I'll just say askleo.com. When you go to this page on askleo.website, um, here's what the characteristics of the browser look like. So that doesn't mean that I can proactively say I know what page you're going to, but it does mean that of this predefined set of fingerprints, page fingerprints that I might have, I can tell which ones of those you are going to with something like a 70 to 90% accuracy rate. Um, it's really, really fascinating that they're able to do this. And it's really, it's, it sounds scary, uh, but it's not in the sense that at worst, all they're really doing is exposing what URLs you went to. And even then they had to know which URLs to look for. Um, there's no data exposed. You can't see what's actually transpiring in that web page. But it's another case of unintentional data leakage that happens even when everything is operating correctly. Uh, it's, it'll be interesting to see how they fix it. Uh, the solution for those who are concerned uh, is to run one tab at a time or to run different browsers or different machines, of course. And the big one that people have a little bit of concern over is that this can apply to individuals who are attempting to use Tor to hide their online activity. So they could be firing up a, a web browser that accesses Tor and in one tab have this malicious JavaScript monitoring what's going on in the other tab and identify potentially where you're going. And depending on why you're trying to hide what you're doing in Tor, that could be kind of, kind of important. So that was kind of an interesting, an interesting side effect of, of things working, working properly. And I, I just found it kind of fascinating. Yeah, I, uh, I found it fascinating too. Uh, but, you know, I agree with you saying that it's probably not something you need to worry too much about because, you know, when I read about their experiment, I think they took something like, I forget, it was like 5,000 fingerprints of different pages 
And then the experiment was, could you, could they figure out which one it was right. that was being loaded? And of course, in reality, 5,000 isn't going to get you anything, right? Well, but, but in, in, the def, in defense of the, of the argument for this being um, significant, I guess, uh, a true hacker is going to build a database of way more than 5,000 pages. But, right? right, but but of course, that database is going to need constant updating because yes. the big websites, the popular websites are going to change. And actually, some of the most popular websites, I'm thinking of Facebook and any news website, things like that, are going to change constantly because the content is changing all the time. And that fingerprint isn't going to be valid for very long. Right. Um, depending yeah. on what it is you're, you're doing and what it is you're trying to expose people's doing um you're right for a lot of sites that's not going to count but for some sites it could be could be significant and and i think it's it's easy well it seems to me it should be easily fixed if this is all hinging around javascript being able to get the value of the size of the browser cache which i didn't know was possible and i can't imagine why that's important uh, and, and again i i'm i'm may i kind of made that specific up as an example oh, okay of information that is readily available to javascript that would seem to be benign but can yeah. be used for nefarious purposes so they could they could fix that i mean there could simply be you know a update to javascript that could be not they don't even have to fix it completely like if there is information like that they could just make it a little fuzzier <laughs> you know and in fact if i'm not mistaken i vaguely remember reading exactly that that the precision yeah. remember part of this is also monitoring it over time so they're actually polling this data and collecting the data and one of the solutions was to make the uh, the timer the built-in timer less accurate yeah yeah, exactly. So, but it is an interesting model to look for for other exploits. You know, what else? You know, thinking this way, what else could be exploited in such a way? Um, other system, future system, something else. I don't know. Um, unintended data could lead yeah, exactly. To and I'm pretty sure that you know the realization of the techniques used behind Spectre and Meltdown got a lot of people thinking about, okay, how else can we use this technique? What else can we do uh, along these same lines in other areas? And, right. You know, I think the, the article that we're going to point to also uh, uses as an example that, you know, if advertisers could figure out what other websites you're going to, they could use that information. And I looked at that as a little skeptical because at some point, the returns from the technique, <laughs> you know, costs more to actually gather the information than you're going to get. Uh, you know, from it when you're using such amazing, amazingly complex techniques and collecting so much data to just figure out that this person's shopping for a new car. You know, you, you get to I the wonder, point where it's like, you know, you could have just bought a thousand ads to people that maybe were shopping for a new car less than you could have targeted this one person. Right. I'm, so I'm wondering, uh, it's funny because as somebody who, who just bought a new car, uh, <laughs> My, you know, my wife replaced her car last week and I'm now getting flooded with ads for this very same car, you know, that we already bought. Oh, yeah. but the, the, I was wondering if using advertising as a model um, was more of an example of a way it could be used that a lot of people already um, understand and, and have some amount of sympathy towards because they see advertising tracking and, and see that kind of stuff happening all the time. So this is one way to, to make this kind of thread a little bit more real for people that aren't perhaps using Tor and trying to hide their activities. Right. Yeah. I, I imagine so. So it's my five minutes up.
Yeah, yeah. You, wanna, yeah, you can okay. come back in the room, Kevin. You, you can you can wake up. Hey, but only if you tell us something interesting. Sure. Um, I saw a super interesting Twitter thread from uh, Jason Kobler, who is the editor in chief of uh, Motherboard. And uh, it relates to something we've talked about a little bit before. We've talked on this podcast about uh, hacking, the legalities of hacking tractors. Um, and he, the motherboard had actually written an article about that. And he said, I'm, I'm going to quote liberally from his excellent Twitter thread because he summarizes it way better than I could. Um, uh, he said, soon after we published our documentary about tractor hacking, Reader reached out to let him know about a small community of sleep apnea patients who have begun hacking their CPAP machines to circumvent the digital rights management that manufacturers put on them. Uh, he started poking around the forums and learned that CPAP machines generate reams of data every night, but very little of that is available to the patients. Instead, they're asked to take SD cards with the data to the doctors. Um, the doctors might glance at it. They don't have the time to really super dig into the data, uh, typically. So lots of doctors just use that to check for compliance, meaning are you actually using your machine? Uh, and rather than finding out, really digging in there to get, get more information about how the machines are working and what the, the patient needs. Um, the data is stored in proprietary formats that are specific to each machine and can only be read by very expensive software that the, the manufacturers make. Um, so naturally, someone decided to hack the data formats and open source everything. <laughs> uh, the software is called Sleepyhead, and it was made by a single Australian hacker. And uh, thousands of people now rely on the software and have used it to tweak their CPAP settings to tailor their care to their specific type of apnea. Uh, the maker, his name is uh, Mark Watkins, has had some help, but largely he's done it completely on his own. Uh, Sleepyhead is free and open source. And uh, he's a stay-at-home dad who had to quit his own job due to health reasons, so he's been working on, on this software in his spare time. Um, and... Uh, the good, it says, he says the good news is that hacking CPAP machines is legal thanks to an exemption to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act uh, earned in 2015. Of course, the medical device industry fought the exemption. Uh, and uh, he quotes what, the, what they said, but basically it's just a bunch of BS saying like, you should, it's our data. Uh, and uh, he says, what I heard over and over again is that with something like sleep apnea, patient empowerment is key because they can drill into the data in a way that their doctors can't. Uh, I spoke to a handful of patients who self-treated and saw improvements when doctors couldn't help. And he points to some forums uh, where that teach people how to use the software. And uh, I just thought it was amazing that uh, people ha can access this data thanks to basically thanks to one guy. <laughs> Yeah, I read this article. It's just yeah. fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, my mother has sleep apnea and uses a CPAP. And, you know, she can't get the doctor to fine-tune anything. So this is such a empowering tool for people who really aren't getting any kind of support to fix their problem or, or to mm -hmm. improve their problem. And I think it's fantastic that this, I mean, this guy's put in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours to you know, add another machine because somebody will say, well, yeah, my machine is a you know, XYZ model four. Your software doesn't have that. And so he'll say, well, 
you know, send me some data files. Tell me what you do know it actually says in there, and I'll see if I can decode it all. And he does. Yeah. Very cool. Um, and that's for, just so neat. I actually used a CPAP machine, a machine myself for several years. And uh, I can ab- absolutely attest to the SD card thing. It was one of those things where you make an appointment and they remind you, you know, bring in the memory card. Uh, it's funny, though. Uh, more modern CPAP machines don't use memory cards. They actually have um, an always-on uh, data connection. Wi-Fi, yeah. To your, either to your home Wi-Fi or apparently in some cases to the cellular net. They don't, mm. they don't need a lot of bandwidth. Uh, while they're collecting a lot of data, what you and I would consider to be a lot of data, um, it's like a minuscule amount when it comes to actual transmission time. I know that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the, the SD card we had at the time was like one or two gig, and it had like just, you know, a couple of megabytes worth of data after several months worth of recording. So all it's really doing is recording things like um, time and pressure and whether the thing is actually running, which are just a few numbers. So it, it can collect a lot of data uh, in, in very little space. And uh, yeah, so having it always on and having it be remotely accessible is the next step that these machines are going to. So did you, were you able to stop using it because you lost weight? Is that the? Yes. Yes, I did. Okay. The, uh, I explicitly, after I re- uh, met my weight goal, I uh, explicitly asked the, uh, the sleep doctor to rerun the test. And he indicated that I was one of the very few people that uh, whose sleep apnea um, uh, symptoms abate due to weight loss. Most people don't. Most people have a problem where it's, it's more, I'll just say, structural in nature. Uh, but in my case, it was definitely about um, being a tad junkie. I think the real reason yeah, is lost. you bricked your CPAP machine after hacking it. <laughs> you know, it's funny because had I, had I had access to this kind of a tool, absolutely I'd be looking at my own data. I mean, sure. I, I, I love data. I'd be doing all sorts of, I'd be charting it. I'd be doing all sorts of interesting <laughs> things. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it's very cool. I like, like you guys, I just love that uh, someone did this. Um, it's a bonus that it's legal, but even if it weren't, I think it would be uh, at least extremely ethical in the sense that it's empowering so many people. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of data storage. Data storage. That was that was. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's go back into space, man. Um, one of the uh, astronauts on the International Space Station said he opened a locker that didn't look like it had been open for a while, and inside he found a big stash of floppy disks, which I thought was just hilarious. So there's even things like Norton Utilities for XP in there, and just all sorts of interesting little things that that, you know, somebody just stuffed in a locker. You'd think they would have put put them, you know, in the trash bag and, you know, to burn up and go back down to earth. But no, they're still there. Nice. Um, yeah, that, it, this has gotten a lot of press. My, I have a buddy uh, who's really into floppy disks. He, it's like his, his hobby, floppy disks. Of all, now these floppy disks of all sizes and, and readers. And uh, his name is Foon Turing. And he went down a rabbit hole researching these disks that were found on the space station. Um, 
And he wanted, he, he, so he did this the, uh, amazing Twitter thread where he figured out, first of all, when they went up and, and who took them up, what it must have cost to, to get each of these, these three and a half inch discs up there, um, when they were used and what for, because he was going through the, uh, the, the, t- the official timeline ISS keeps a, basically a log of everything that happens. Like every time those discs were used for something, Phone <laughs> found it and and wrote about it and basically uh, they needed they needed uh, Nor- the Norton Utilities they needed Norton Ghost when one of the computers stopped working and uh, um, one of the discs turns out had a some bad sectors on it so they had to have the data uh, retransmitted up from from Earth um, uh, and uh, he found some super interesting stuff uh, from that about. Uh, 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 he found an article saying that that the the laptops that they they use there have modified uh, power supplies to use the 28 volt volt DC power source that that's available to them on the space station. And then he found a bunch of stuff where they're having problems getting printers to work and getting having font issues where they they can't make software applications certain applications work because uh, uh, because fonts weren't rendering properly. Um, so yeah, even up even up in in space, um, computers are jerks. <laughs> the thing that bothers me the most about this story, yeah, is that there was a locker that nobody looked in for how long? Years. I mean, I mean that's that's that just it makes you me. wonder what other lockers are storing interesting things. Yeah, exactly. It seems like they would need a, a nice nice detailed inventory of what's going on up there. Um, is weight Still an issue when you've already got it in orbit? No. Okay. Because I was thinking... Spaces, though. I mean, they, they're usually pretty cramped. Yeah, but, well, clearly they're not because they've got this locker they haven't opened in however long. It was long. like 10 floppy disks. How much room could it take? <laughs> the floppy disks are what they told us about. They didn't tell us what else was in that locker. <laughs> and by definition, a lock, to me, a locker would be bigger than just, you know, whatever it takes to put in 10 floppy disks. Yeah, Although it wasn't a nice stuff in there. It wasn't a nice little folder container type thing. So it wasn't just like a stack of discs. They were actually, you know, semi-organized and everything. So I, I really liked the the stuff that Foon was posting. And the, my two favorite comments that he had about this was my favorite thing about the floppies on the space station tweet, besides the all of it, is how the floppies have these silly little homemade in Microsoft Word labels on them or are handwritten. And then he's has a follow-up comment that says, you're NASA with an annual budget of $18 billion and none of it is going to labeling your floppies. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, if they had to label the floppies, then maybe they wouldn't have been able to land on Mars. Right. Yeah, something, you got a trade-off somewhere. Exactly. But you asked about launching, yeah, it's about $18,000 a kilogram to get stuff up to the space station. Okay. Once, yeah, it's there, once it's there, it's free. Yeah. Once right. it's there, it's there. But yeah, it takes some energy to get it up there. That's that's a theory going on with my basement, right? Once it's there, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just I don't want to clean that out. Right? Talk to my wife about this theory. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Anyway. Yeah. All right, Gary. Gary. What do you have? Yeah, I've got a little story here. It's up my alley. Uh, the Supreme Court was talking about Apple today. Um, so there's this case that started way back in 2011, shortly after Apple introduced the App Store. 
and it's basically a antitrust, you know, monop- uh, monopoly case, right? On iOS, the iPhone and iPad, you could only get apps from the Apple App Store, the iOS App Store. And uh, the case says that's not fair, right? They need to open it up to uh, third-party app stores. Um, and I guess this, this got knocked down in lower courts, and eventually, I guess the Supreme Court decided they would at least listen to some arguments, and they listened to them today, and now they're pondering, you know, whether or not they're going to investigate further or allow this to, you know, be a full-fledged Supreme Court case. It's an interesting thing because, you know, their argument uh, is that um, you, you have no choice as a developer to go through uh, Apple. You have to go through them. No other way to sell your software on these devices. And uh, Apple's charging 30% usually for it. And you have to pay that. You have no choice. And, um, and that developers cannot speak out against this because, you know, if they do, there's fear of backlash, right? So they're trying to, you know, take this as a class action lawsuit and say, you know, Apple's got to open it up. But if they did open it up, let's say this case was won um, and Apple had to open it up, that one of the key things for security on iOS is the fact that everything has to go through this one channel. And there's a lot of controls over it and oversight and all of that. So the idea of downloading a piece of malware onto your iPhone is pretty much non-existent because there's just no way to get malware on your machine. It all has to go through Apple. So be interesting to see where this goes. And there's like, as far as a consumer case, you know, their arguments are all, you know, consumer-based. The consumer would be better off. I'm not so sure the consumer would be better off. I mean, you know, if if you had to worry about malware, um, I don't know if that would be worth the trade-off. But as a developer, I can certainly see the other side too, so. The uh, they certainly have a uh, compare and contrast example to play with, and that's the Android Store. Yeah, where indeed uh, there have been a couple of news items over the past couple of weeks about you know, thousands of different apps in the Google Store having gone through some yeah. amount of vetting that turn out to be malware or contain malware. Um, and of course, on Google on an Android phone, you have the ability to sideload, which means avoid the store completely. Uh, but uh, but those are good counterexamples of why it's safer to do it uh, the Apple way and uh, uh, let them, I guess, make some trade-offs. I don't know. It bothers me that this is going through a court process. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd much rather uh, let the market continue to decide. Well, it, it, one of the other things that bothers, well, not bothers me, but it's an interesting aspect of it is say, say this went in this direction and they said, you have to allow third-party app stores. Now, a whole bunch of third-party app stores sprung up and you can now go to these and download apps. Well, first of all, there's piracy, right? Suddenly you see your apps on these other app stores, and it's like, I didn't make that. With Apple, you know, you have this one app store, there's a complaints process and all that. But a third-party app store can just ignore you. Say, I don't care. You're, it's pirated software. I don't care. The other thing is, is if somebody downloads something that then causes harm, um, and so your iPhone's not working anymore, right? You know, you got this third-party app store, you downloaded something, and now your iPhone's not working. What do you do? You go to the Apple store and you say, my iPhone's not working anymore. And Fix they have it. to support you. And here it is, you've, you know, it's like, so now they're su- spending money supporting you because you downloaded something that they didn't want you to be able to download in the first place. They would have prevented it. So, so that's really interesting. And, and it doesn't have to necessarily be malware. 
because on mobile platforms, you could have something that simply eats a lot of bandwidth, eats a lot of battery, right? It would be easy to make an app that just sucks battery life out of your phone and you install it and it's like, oh, it does this really cool thing. You know, plays a funny animation on my phone, but it, it eats a lot of battery. And then you complain to Apple, hey, I, my, my iPhone dies after an hour. And it's because you're running this, this software that Apple would have, if it was an app store, say, ah, this violates one of our terms here. Um, and it is not, uh, uh, you know, we're removing it from the store or whatever. So it's from a customer support standpoint. I don't know how it works on Android. I mean, if the, the, you know, you take your phone to back to Verizon or whatever and say. Right. They, they do what they can. They give best effort. It, it, it varies a tremendous amount based on not just the carrier, but the specific store you happen to go to. To be honest, it's nothing like, um, you know, an Apple, an Apple store. Um, you definitely get a higher level of service out of taking something back to an Apple store than you would uh, taking an Android back. Um, and it is. It's the, it's the wild, wild west. What I was wondering is, couldn't Apple uh, decide or, or state that uh, if you have one of these third-party stores installed on your phone, then this is what happens to your support. And I'm not even saying that your support is cut off, but maybe there's a fee or you know, a, a different level of service that you get if you've opened the door to shooting yourself in the foot. I, I'm wondering that that would probably be an instant follow-up lawsuit, right? You know, so if you're, if you're some software company and you say, we're going to go into business as an app store now that the Supreme Court has ruled that you can do this. And then they go into business and Apple says, ah, if you use their app store, then your Apple Care is void or your Apple Care goes down a level or something like that. Then I see this company saying, oh, they're, they're trying to be anti-competitive. Now we're filing a lawsuit. But there's also got to be this thing that says, you know, if you installed an app through this third-party app store, go talk to them for support. We're not responsible for things you get other than through our channels. Yeah, I, I, yeah. either way, it's not a good situation, right? It's not right. good for the customer right. to, to give them these rules, but, and it's not good for Apple who would get, there'd be a lot of, it, it would be very good for lawyers, I think. They would be the ones that would benefit a lot because there'd be a lot more lawsuits flying around uh, in that kind of situation. It's a big can of worms. I mean, it, yeah. Can of worms. It really That's is. a good way to put it. Yeah. And I don't think the, uh, the Apple users are going to really like what happens if they have to change. Cause I, I'm with Leo that, you know, this is, this is really about the security of the, of the phone. And we're seeing on Android that even with, supposedly Google vetting the apps, we're getting garbage through. So, you know, side loading is going to make it worse. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, I was, it made me think about, you know, the anti-competitive behavior here. You know, one of the things is that Apple charges developers 99 bucks a year. You know, if you want to be in the developer program, which is the only way to get the certificates to actually submit something to the app store, you have to pay $99 a year. And part of me is like, yeah, I hear developers complain about that, saying, oh, that's like anti-competitive and all this. But part of me is like, well, that if you do it as a sliding scale from zero to $50,000 a year, <laughs> now Apple could put it anywhere they want. At, at a high price, at thousands of dollars a year, a lot of junk would be gone from the app store. The developers, mm -hmm. you know, individuals that yeah. just want to submit something that's just for them or whatever, they would stop doing that. And you'd have only big software companies that would be doing it. On the other hand, if you lowered it down, you probably have more 
junk in there. Yeah, if there was no cost, if it was free or yeah. something, there would be so much more junk. Right. So, having a bar, even if it's a low bar, is a bar. It's a barrier yeah. entry to keep scammers away to some extent. It does. And it, and it also is you're paying for something because it, it's hard to say, you know, as a developer, I hate the process of submitting something to the, the, uh, the store. You know, it's like, I know the rules, my stuff fits the rules. Now I have to wait for approval. Like I'm a child. Right. But on the other hand, I know that other people are breaking the rules and they need to be stopped before, you know, their junk gets in the store. So and that takes time. They have a whole, you know, staff that goes and reviews these apps to make sure they comply. And when I pay my $99, it's like an all access pass, right? I can submit one app or 50 apps that year. And I've paid for all that. Plus, of course, I'm paying for like, they store my app and they, it, the app gets downloaded, right? All the bandwidth uh, is taken care of by Apple, things like that. So there are expenses. And I kind of feel like, you know, it shouldn't be free. Free does, doesn't feel right. And $99 kind of feels appropriate, you know, especially letting young new developers with just an idea maybe get in there and try something out. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because I can totally see a conservative court going, oh, it's anti competitive, and, and, but without fully understanding the technological underpinnings and could screw up a. A lot of people's phones, really. Right, and and I I would imagine I mean this current knowing about the current system, how there's certificates and digital signatures on these apps, and how it works in the app store and all of that stuff. I mean, Apple would have to create a completely new system where they would allow third-party app stores. Um, and another way to do it was is not to really allow third-party app stores, but to kind of have this thing where. You have what looks like a third-party app store, but the approval all still goes through Apple. And then that app store has to, you know, part of your fees or whatever goes through them rather than through Apple. And it, it, I don't know, it would be a whole mess. And, and it's, com- it's complex enough as it is now, as anybody who's ever tried as like a, a solopreneur or small, you know, group of people wanting to do their first app and go around all the different things you need to get, you need to do to get that first app in the app store. A lot of stuff you need to do, and it, you pull your hair out doing it. I can only imagine if Apple had to make it ten times more complex to accommodate this. Oof. I think there's something to be said, maybe, for allowing side loading, like uh, just loading directly from your your Mac or, or for something, for instance. Because um, first of all, only the geeks are going to do it, and <laughs> and it would allow someone to create a you know, app for a specific organization. Maybe it's just like, oh, you work for a company and here's an uh, app that goes in your iPad that helps you interface with customers in the field or something. Actually, they already have that. Okay, well, all right. It's, it's, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's one of the three ways you could could distribute. You can do it as a beta test through an Mm -hmm. app called TestFlight, which they still have to approve. And then you could do it through the store. And then they have this third way that's been around since the beginning, which is for exactly what you just suggested. Hmm. You know, if you're running a big company, you, you're deploying 5,000 iPads. Right. You could go in and it never, it's not in the app store. It's just something distributed um, there. So it, it, would, it would be nice to have a way to be able to uh, use apps that are no longer available in the store. Uh, maybe you, there's an old game that you really love that's right. 
no longer available because the company went out of business or whatever. You know, just load it up, you know, from your computer because you've already got it there. And, and anyway, so and there, there, I can see some, it's not all yeah. bad, but I see some benefits for sure. But And there is a way. So if you, if, if you get all the development software, right, and you, what you're talking about is like an open source project, you could grab that open source project, you have the development software, you can create a version of, of that, you can compile it basically, and then load it to your phone. Um, and, and, you know, it works just like if you were building your own app. And there are people that do that, that will go and grab open source pieces of software. The, one of the things about those is they expire after a short period of time. I think it's months or something like that, um, which is fine because if you're doing that, then you just load a new version on you, you recompile load a new version on every few months um but it's possible and and this is how like you if you're a developer and you just want to play around with the stuff you know you want to you know we're like i want to make a cool app but just for my phone you could do that and you never have to submit to the store you just have your developer copy on your phone the whole time so anyway well i think we it's an interesting problem you know i see both sides but yeah. It's a can of worms. Big can of worms. Yep. <laughs> so Gary, what are you doing this coming week? Uh, not much, you know, getting, um, just continuing with my current projects, you know, my, uh, doing my WordPress site has been interesting because WordPress 5.0 is about to come out, but they've pushed it back twice now. I, I actually meant to check before we went on today, uh, to see, whether or not um, they have a new release date for WordPress 5.0. It was supposed to be the 27th, was the first pushback, and I think they've delayed it further past that. Um, so just trying to come out with tutorials and maybe a course or something like that um, has been tough because <laughs> it's, it's basically a new build every night of WordPress 5.0, and things change. Um, so anyway, keeping keeping tabs on that, and that's going to be interesting when they release it because a lot of people will just update and then they'll find that oh wait things are different. How do I use this? So yeah, it's interesting interesting stuff. I think uh, we all use WordPress to some extent, and uh, I'm a little apprehensive about this big change. We'll see what happens. As am I. I know that uh, there will be you know one sacrificial site. <laughs> That will not be askleo.com. That will uh, give it a try first just to see what uh, what to expect. I, I can say that I'm using the beta, the nightly build beta on my test site. And I'm using the you know f- current version 4.9.8 everywhere else. And if you're using the Gutenberg editor already uh, on 4.9.8, you don't really notice that much difference. Like going from 4.9.8 to 5, uh, I'd have a hard time at a glance noticing. Can you install the classic editor on five? I believe, yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure you can. And definitely one of the one of the blocks in Gutenberg editor is classic block. I, I understand, so, but I, for example, on a, on a site as important as Ask Leo. Yeah. That's not something I want to learn. It's not something I want my, my staff to have to deal with. I just want to install the classic editor plugin and have it work the way it's always worked. Um, and that would, in fact, prevent me from upgrading to five, at least for a while, if that were not a possibility. Yeah, I uh, have to look into that because I'm specifically not doing that. 
so I can be right uh, all immersed in the Gutenberg editor. Right. Um, but I imagine I imagine you can. I imagine that's the whole point. And you know, here's the important thing to know: is the underlying thing that is a post is still a post. Like it's still one basically piece of text right <laughs> underneath whether you're using the Gutenberg editor, classic editor, ed- editing raw text, you know, right. or raw HTML, it's still one thing. People, when you look at the blocks in the Gutenberg editor, you think, oh, this is a whole different deal now. You know, it's not. It's really not. It's just the editor on top that is a different deal. Underneath, it's, it's still the same. It's interesting because uh, some themes, and I'm thinking specifically of the Divi theme, and I think it's the my, MAI theme, actually I've used on a couple of sites, they implement a similar model, this block model, where you, you, know, you, you build a post by putting different blocks in place. So it's not necessarily something new. It's just the, the, the concern I have is that I, you know, I've got four or 5,000 entries in Ask Leo that have been built a particular way. Um, I don't necessarily want to have to, uh, to certainly not go back and change them all. I just want to make sure that things continue to work. And the easiest way to make things continue to work for me is to continue to do so with the old editor. Yeah. Anyway, um, as for me this week, I'm just playing catch up. Uh, like I said, I took an unexpected week off, a week and a half off more likely, um, yesterday or last week because of, uh, because of being ill. And I'm frantically, frantically writing my little heart out and answering questions and commenting and doing all sorts of stuff. I'm going to spend my part of my week uh, trying to finish the game Zork 3 for my uh, Eaten by a Gru Infocom podcast. It's a text adventure game that came out in 1982. And it's hard. It's hard. So hopefully I'll be done with that in the next uh, seven days if I do nothing else. <laughs> and I have honeydews, which in my house means I have to help my wife with her computer. And she's uh, got some new software she wants help with. She wants to uh, play with my iPad and see how that works for her. So basically, tech support. Welcome to my world. Yep. <laughs> All righty. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh50. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next week. As we enter our terrible twos. Oh, no. (laughs) Bye, Bye, everyone. (laughs) 